Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tops Talk, episode 26, and we thank you for listening in from whenever and wherever you are. I'm your host, Alex Burge. These days, people have their eyes glued to their television, computer, and mobile devices, looking to catch glimpses of LeBron James, Steph Curry, and their numerous sidekicks in this season's exciting NBA Finals. I thought it would be appropriate timing then to play an interview I recorded some months ago with one of the best basketball and overall sports writers out there. Lee Jenkins of Sports Illustrated. While everyone knows his affection for basketball, the man has a huge passion for baseball and baseball card collecting, which you'll hear about in just a few moments. Also on the program this week is brand manager Kevin Eager, who came on to talk about Tier 1 Baseball, which is out in hobby stores now. He is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and has been since 2007, and he's primarily covered the NBA since 2010. Lee Jenkins, thank you so much for joining. Hey, Alex, how are you? Doing very well, thank you. And why don't we go right into it, into it being the love of collecting cards, which I know that really resonates with you and has resonated with you for uh, for your life, uh, at least for the beginning of your life. And why don't you go into um, how that really was a part of your life? Well, I think probably for most, you know, most sports writers, they start off with a love of sports. And I think, you know, when you're young, that love is, is probably fostered or manifested, you know, largely through card collecting. I think it's watching sports on TV is part of it, playing is part of it, you know, and the cards sometimes kind of push it over the top. And, you know, when I was young, of course, I would, you know, I was interested in the players, then I'd become interested in their stats and knowing a little bit more about them. And, and so much of that, obviously, was all contained on the back of a card. And then, and now I have a son who's seven years old, starting to get into it, and, and you see kind of the other things that it teaches about, you know, taking care of your possessions and, you know, keeping them in mint condition, as it were, or, you know, figuring out kind of in the early stages about what things are worth and, you know, talking a little bit about, about money. Um, so, I mean, there are just so many, so many elements of it that I think were, were foundational to really everybody who loves sports. I think most sports writers like myself, you know, fell into that category for sure when we were young. Do you remember any players that you really tried to collect uh, or any sets that you went after regarding maybe the type of year that they were in? Yeah, you know, so I have, I actually keep a card. I keep an 84 Tops card right on my bedside table. Um, it's a Tony Gwynn card. I'm from San Diego, so he obviously meant a lot to me. His rookie card, it wasn't, a, it, I, I never I never got the rookie card. He's wearing a number in the 50s. Um, the card was actually a picture of his backside. One of the first cards I got, though, was 84, and that was the year I really became into baseball. I was seven years old. The Padres went to the World Series that season. They've only been twice. Um, and it's a great card, Tony. And, and one thing that's funny about it, you see sort of what your seven-year-old self values. It's completely mangled. I mean, it's folded in <laughs> a million different ways. It's not worth a penny to anybody but me. To me, it's priceless because it shows – if you can see on it, I mean, you can see somebody who probably folded it up. I carried it in my pocket. I carried it with me to school. It almost looks like what for a baby would be a security blanket. It looks so loved 
Um, and that's kind of why I still have it. I was going through my, my parents' things. I was up down in their house not long ago and saw it um, shortly after Tony died um, and decided I was never going to kind of let it get out of my sight again. So I, I keep that one close by. Another one I keep close by is the 85 Tops of Tony um, that I got signed. I always thought it was funny that it diminishes the value, supposedly, if you get it signed. But I remember when I got the card signed um, at a Padre game. And so those are the two that are probably closest to me. When I was young, my, my favorite baseball player outside of San Diego was Vince Coleman. Uh, it was kind of a, a random choice, but I, I have probably 150 Vince Coleman cards. Um, so I, I collected every Vince Coleman card I could get my hands on, minor league cards, a college card from when he was at Florida A&M. There was a little set devoted to Vince Coleman I have. I mean, every you know every kind of random card you can imagine. Of course, all of the all the Topps cards I have, you know, I'd fill at least a sheet in my binder, you know, with every 85 tops, 86 tops, 87 tops through the years, um, you know, until I kind of stopped collecting, which would have been around 91. Yeah, and so what about uh, Vince Coleman? I'm fascinated by this player choice because he's a great player, and and I just want to know why Vince Coleman. Well, he for, wasn't for you. A great. I mean, he wasn't an an outstanding player. I don't really know why. I mean, it's it's funny you make decisions when you're young, and you know when I go back now and look at the way I preserve my cards, you know, you see these ones that you know, there are these cases that look like they're bulletproof. I mean, they're they're enormous cases that I would put you know a Griffey card in or. You know, I remember thinking that a guy named Willie Ainsley, he was a, um, he was a minor leaguer for the Astros. I, I was convinced, I convinced myself that this guy was going to be like, you know, I don't know, the next Hank Aaron or something. So I was going through my, my collection, you know, not long ago, and I had like 50 Willie Ainsley cards. Obviously, that one didn't pan out so well. But, you know, I remember seeing Vince, one of the first games I went to was a Cardinals-Padres game. I remember Joaquin Andujar pitched for the Cardinals, and Vince was a rookie and I'm sure it was the speed that was sort of intoxicating at the time. But for one reason or another, you know, we make decisions when we're that age and you just, you're loyal. You just you stick to it. And for all the years that followed, I, I mean, there was a one day that went by that I didn't look at Vince Coleman's box score. Not one day, not one morning would I leave for school without knowing if he was 0 for 4, 2 for 4. Um, and, you know, when I got older, he started having – and he started having some issues. You know, he had some um, some problems with the Mets. He was involved in a, a bit of a scandal where he threw a firecracker outside of Dodger Stadium. And by that time, when I was older, I would always go to the games when he was in San Diego. I'd have a sign. And he, he kind of, I think he kind of knew me in a way, like that was the fan, the little kid who was always in San Diego with a Vince Coleman sign. And he flipped me a bat once and batting gloves. So I have some of his some of his things. And when I became a sports writer, first story I wrote about, actually, when I was uh, for a major paper, it was the San Diego Union-Tribune, and Vince had had his firecracker incident, and I wrote this column for the local paper kind of defending him, um, which I'm sure is, is something I don't really want to look back on and see what I wrote, <laughs> um, but it was just, it was one of those love affairs, I think, dovetailed with the love of cards, because it was a way that I could sort of, uh, you know, you'd send the cards out to guys to get signed. Um, you'd keep them close. I, mean, I still remember my first day of school, of seventh grade, you know, scary, going to a new campus, ton of kids, and I didn't really know what to do. or I, I, did, I felt very alone. And I remember tucking a Vince card into my pocket um, in a sleeve and almost feeling like I was there with a friend. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that right there, I think, is the essence of card collecting. I mean, no matter what, I mean, 
it doesn't matter the the worth outside of what it means to you when it makes you feel that way when it make, when he gives you that comfort and and that that knowledge that uh, that you know what you have a familiarity which is you feel a connection i mean you yeah. feel a connection to these guys and what's so interesting about it is now you know now i have a son and you know i think most of us are card collecting lives. I mean, some people obviously are consistent with it, but for most of us, I think it's about seven years. That that seems to be about the window. For me, it was it was 84 to 91 when I was kind of seven to 14. So my son just turned seven, and, I, and he loves baseball. I watch MLB Network every day, and just introducing him to card collecting, the, the 15 top set was like, I'll always remember now, is his first the first set that he was really into where we'd go to the store and get packs and he'd be building his set like he has and he's got, you know, his binder with all his sheets and kind of watching this begin and watching his friends trade. I mean, it's as close as we can come to sipping from the fountain of youth probably because just watching, looking at the look on his face when he, and he loves Mike Trout. We live in Los Angeles. I mean, when he opens a Mike Trout card, you know, it's the same look I probably have when I got a Gwyn card in an '84 Topps pack. So it's a, uh, you know, it's it's just an incredible connection, and and I can already see that his love of baseball is being fostered through all the cards. And actually, it's a funny story. I, you know, in the '15 Topps pack, he had a, uh, he had a, he had a G, one of those Jeter cards, you know, for the retirement. And I had lying around somewhere. I think it was from '93 or something. A pack of an old some old tops cards and he opened that pack and it was a Derek Jeter card from when he was drafted <laughs> so wow. from 93 to, you know in, in the span of a day my seven-year-old got one Jeter in a 2015 pack and another in a 93 pack and it just sort of shows you know how these players careers can span the generation yeah and it shows a different way for fans to get in touch with baseball history and I, and I think that is one of the more underrated real benefits of collecting nowadays because anyone can go online and type in Derek Jeter 2015 and then Derek Jeter 1993, put them side to side and be like, huh, all right, that's it. I'm done with that. But instead, you know, you have that feeling of opening a pack or opening you know, cards from 1993 that you, that you could find lying around and it just gives you a whole different experience. I think that's right, and I think it's going to be especially true for this generation. Because, And I don't know, maybe I'm just biased, but it seemed like people of my generation, children of the 80s, that's when the there seemed to be a real card boom. You know, different card companies, but also just you know tons of production of cards. They were readily available, baseball card shows. And we all knew... Okay, our you know our dads and their dads, they, their moms threw away the cards. We're not going to do that. So I think a lot of those cards are still you know they're still very much in existence. And now that you know many children in the eighties are having kids or have had kids, they're going through those cards. You know, I know a lot of my friends' children. They all have all of these Roger Clemens cards and and Barry Bonds and Griffey. You know, especially Griffey. I mean, the fascination with Griffey was just from a card standpoint, it was just incredible. Um, and I think probably enhanced some elements of his legacy. But, you know, now, like, I see all of my son's cards would be either, they're either from the mid-'80s. You know, he has so many of those 87 tops, the wood-paneled uh, wood design, you know, because I would have been 10 and just had so many of those, 88 tops, 86 tops. So he's kind of going through those next to his 2015 set, you know, and constantly badgering me, you know, when are the 16s out, when are the 60s out. So it's, um, it, it is a really cool thing. I think that they will, 
you know, they will kind of grow up learning a little bit about, you know, what that game was like in the 80s. Unfortunately, I don't have too many cards from those those bygone eras, so that has to come across more in books and stories. But um, for sure, there's a link to, to that period, I think, when your dad had the cards, just because we all knew better than to throw them away. Yeah, that's a great point about the fact that, you know, you, you just know not to throw them away. And because of that, the market's probably hugely flooded now. <laughs> but, but Hugely, yeah. yeah but, that, but you know what? As you get older, I mean, at the time, that meant a lot, right? The value of it. And now it really doesn't mean squat to me. I mean, it's more about just the stars and the players that it gets you. You know, we'll be going through cards, and I'll be like, wow, there's, there's an Yvonne Calderon card. And it just kind of gets you talking about the Expos and what happened with that and, and how many great players they developed. And you know, every card kind of gets you onto a different story. And look, some of the stories aren't pleasant. I mean, you know, when I, you know, you have to have the conversation about Bonds when there's a Bonds card or, you know, McGuire, Conseco, and, you know, but some of them really are, you know, you talk about like those mid eighties Cardinals and the way they play the different ways that, you know, the guys play, the memories you have. So I, I think that it's kind of a, to me now, it, the, the value is sort of insignificant. It's more, you know, the stimulus for storytelling. Kevin Eager, brand manager of Tops Tier 1 Baseball. Good to have you again, my friend. Thanks, Alex. Great to be on the program. It's been a while. It has been. Episode 3, I think, and then you make your triumphant return for episode 26. That's quite a gap. Yeah, and in a different landscape, too. So, you know, previously talking about the football business and excited to kind of be full on board for baseball and to continue to drive the tops business and a lot of great things happening, you know, starting with Tier 1 Baseball. Absolutely. Tier 1 Baseball, it is one of my absolute favorite products. And it just looks so beautiful this year. A, a lovely marble feel of it. Once uh, people see it, they'll know what I'm talking about. What are some highlights of this product that you can just jump right into? Yeah, so I think like when you when, when consumers and fans think about Tier 1, you think about the rare um, relic hits that are offered in the product, uh, particularly um, the bat knobs. You know, the one-of-one one bat knobs have been kind of a centerpiece for the brand over the years. Um, so I think you're, you're going to expect a lot of wonderful bat knob one-of-one hits, as well as other amazing one-of-one limited relic hits, uh, limited lumber. There's some all-star relics um, in the mix this year, some very large kind of oversized patch cards that are featured um, on the relic side. And then if you look towards the autograph side, you know, you have that tier one autograph, which we guarantee one per case um, on the product. And you're really going to find some great hits here. Um, all the cards are very low numbered. I don't think you're going to find one subject that's numbered over 75. Um, and you're talking about, you know, the best players in the game today and of all time that you'll be able to find in that tier one autograph set. Um, so off the top, those, those are some of the cards I think that the fans have um, become to expect and love from this brand. And then we've also added some some new components to the product as well, which I think will surprise a lot of people. Yeah, let's go right into that. I mean, like you said, you know, Tier 1 is a brand that, that Tops has been pushing out there for a little bit now. And, and people know to expect really nice, high-quality cards. But go into some of the new stuff. Yeah, so the, the first thing that, um, you know, I think a lot of people um, have, we've gotten a lot of attention with are the um, signature tools. So this is a new concept that we're rolling out in Tier 1 where um, we actually took the pen 
or the Statler marker um, that was used to sign the card. And we actually embedded that into the card as a relic piece. So not only do you have a card that was held, um, touched, signed by the player, we then took that pen and embedded it in the card. Um, so these are all going to be one of ones. Um, and we have a really, really, really strong checklist here. A lot of great names, like I had mentioned, current players, Hall of Fame players. So that's something new um, that we think is going to drive a lot of value. Um, and it's really going to kind of set the tone on what we can do moving forward with this brand. Um, and beyond that, we have some new autograph components. Um, I think everybody knows that the autographs are all signed directly on the card on this brand, which um, is, is something that, that consumers love about Tier 1. Um, but we have a breakout autograph component um, that's going to feature you know, a lot of your young, upcoming players, some of your rookie players. So Maeda is going to be in there. Seeger is going to be in there. Lindor, you'll find. Schwarber, Conforto, Trey Turner, as well as some of the stars, um, you know, Syndergaard. Matt's a lot of these you know great young players that are coming up so let's go into some of the names that you know obviously you listed some of the breakout autos how about you go into some of the names in some of the other subsets that people could look for yeah absolutely um so you know especially when you think about the tier one autographs you're going to have kind of the marquee names, the evergreen names that um, you know, Tops tries to put in all of our products, especially uh, products that we position um, as like more of a high-end release like this. So, you know, you're gonna have the best players in the game. So Trout, Harper, um, Brian, as well as some of you know the fan favorite guys. Um, Ken Griffey is gonna be in there. You're gonna get Hank Aaron's gonna be in the product. Sandy Koufax will be in the product. Um, you can find Bo Jackson. All types of players, you know, Barry Larkin, um, Frank Robinson, you know, you, you basically now name you're just it. showing off, man. Now, if you name it, more, more or less they're going to be in the product. And, you know, um, we got a great team um, on the brand, and, you know, they work really hard, um, especially with our licensing team, to make sure that, you know, no stone is unturned. And um, I encourage everybody to go out and take a look at the checklist. You know, I'm probably not going to do it justice here on, on the podcast today, but um, it, it's everyone in the game that who's a superstar you'd expect, and then a lot of Hall of Famers, a lot of fan favorites. Um, so go out and, and check that out. I believe it's live now on the Tops website. This is going to be a tough question. Has having a background in card collecting, has that ever come up when you have either been researching a story or while writing a story that you were reminded of something that kind of tops or just baseball card related? It always comes up. I mean, it, it comes up just in terms of when I'm looking at numbers, I'm just constantly reminded of, because right now it's like, you know, it's the age of the analytics. Everything's about numbers. And I think so many of us who like sports, we fell in love with the sports. We also fell in love with the numbers. It's like, to me, the front of the baseball card came first, you know, wondering sort of who this person is, looking at what they look like and how they wear their wristbands, their batting gloves, how they hold the bat. But then you look on the back and you you find out something about them. And like, like with Vince, it was, you know, I remember looking on the back. I, I remember his birth date. It, he was born on... September 22nd, 1961. But I remember looking at the back of the baseball card and finding out I know he's from Jacksonville, Florida. I know he went to Florida A&M. I know he went to Reigns High School. So what I do now is you, know, you, see, you see that information. It's on Wikipedia. It's everywhere. And you're trying to fill in the gaps. You're trying to 
expound on that, on who is this person that you can't just get from the back of a baseball card. And that's what I try to do, you know, with my job now is, is build off of that, those biographical sketches and, and fill them in and, and add layers to that tapestry. And you know, I love when there's kind of personal details about players on the back. And then, of course, the numbers, you know, that tell you what kind of player he is. Okay, well, you'll hit you know, I go through this with my son. Well, he hit 250. Is 250 a good average? Is it not a good average? Is it middle of the road? I mean, these are the kind of, this is the way you learn about baseball in the beginning and the way you start to appreciate those numbers. And I have to believe that, you know, Andrew Friedman's and John Daniels, all these great young GMs who've come up, Jed Hoyer, that that was the basis of it. That those numbers, that they started looking at those numbers and thinking, these numbers are great. Are there even more numbers? Are there more places that we can go with this? Um, so I do think a lot of it, I think that the card boom of the 80s you know, has fed a lot of what's happened now in terms of sabermetric revolution. Not all of it, but I think that, I just don't think it's a coincidence that there are so many you know, young GMs who were around in that time, falling in love and base with baseball in that time, when there were so many cards, and, they, and they're kind of in some ways taking the mantle of the game forward. And, and look, for me personally, I covered the mess for a couple of years. And I remember the day, like, you know, Tops photographer would be out there and they'd be taking pictures for the cards and, you know, the way David Wright would react and players would react to it. I mean, it's, it's part of the dream, right? It's, it's, there are a lot of things, I think, when, when kids who want to be pro athletes think about when they lie in their bed at night. You know, I hope one of them is being on the cover of SI. I, you know, I think one of them is probably draft night. Um, you know, some of it's more superficial, the big contracts, the houses and cars. And I think one of them is just is being on your own card. It really is that, I don't want to say exclamation point on the, on a career, but I mean, it's really a symbol that, you know what, I've made it. One of my interviews was with the um, old director of photography at Topps, his name is Butch Jacobs. And he said he remembered, he's in, in the clubhouse back in the 90s, he saw this player who was looking at a card of him for the first time, and he actually said the words, man, I've made it. And- that's really, yeah, that's a cool story. And, I, I, and I'm not surprised. I mean, that's one of those things nobody can take away from you. You know, I mean, you, when you think about, you know, I do, I feel that way about the cover of our magazine sometimes. Is like, you know, tell play, like, you know, that's something nobody can take away, and, and, they'll, and they'll have it forever. And it's in this world where everything is kind of on a screen and comes and goes, it's something you can hold and touch and pass down to somebody else. Um, and I, I can't imagine what that's like, um, what that's like for a player to see it. But there are players out there I know who are who are collectors. To some, it probably doesn't mean as much. Um, but to ones who kind of, you know, grew up in the same culture I did, which was, you know, it's Little League, it's going to see your favorite team, it's watching on TV. I mean, that's the thing about baseball is it can, you know, I see with my son, it can affect every element of your life. If you're playing, if you're watching, if you're going to games, if you're collecting cards, it's like you can really immerse yourself into that world. And that's an advantage it has over tennis and golf and, you know, so many of the other of the other sports where you just can't, the level of immersion can't be as complete. Yeah. Well, you, now you said that you couldn't imagine what that feels like. But you know what? I think that of anyone that I know now, you can because your fit, your name is on the front of Sports Illustrated. It might not be your mug. That's of course that's, <laughs> no, they, they that's they the play. <laughs> they I mean, would, would they wouldn't dare. They wouldn't dare. But but <laughs> the name, the name, and that must have been a real thrill when you saw that for the first time. 
It was funny. Then the fir- my first one was a Johan Santana. Um, he was on the cover. I remember that. The and it looked, it almost looked like a baseball card. He had all his palm trees behind him. Yeah, he was on the mound. Yeah. He was on the mound at spring training down in Port St. Lucie. Yeah, I remember the shoot well. And you know what? You're right. And maybe that is sort of one of the reasons. I mean, I still get a kick out of all those cover stories. Um, even though clearly it's not, you know, it's not me. It'll be like LeBron jumping to the moon and, and my name. And <laughs> it's probably as, as fine a print as they can possibly put it. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll take it. And, and maybe there is a part of that, of that feeling like, um, like this is something that's lasting. Because I just, you know, I just remember so clearly those, you know, collect, just the process of the collect, of collections and keeping them in binders. And I don't do that with the magazine now, but I do keep them all in a, you know, in a, in a safe box. And if there was my garage got flooded tomorrow, they'd be okay. Um, so I care about them like that. Um, but the level of care you see around these cards, um, it's, I'm just amazed kind of at what I was, it's a fun window for people who haven't done it. To kind of go back and look at the way you store them, you sort of see what you were to think about what you were thinking back then, like okay, I think this one deserves to go in this enormous fifteen dollar case, <laughs> and this one can just be tossed <laughs> on the ground. And some of the decisions I made were just laughable. Like I, I apparently thought Greg Maddox was horrible because oh, he was just like tossed into these shoe boxes. And then you know I'm trying to hit. You can see I'm, I'm trying to hit it on Hensley Bam Bam Mullins. You know I'm trying to hit these guys who, you know, these rookie cards. Um, it's just funny. It's like somebody, you know, trying to buy stocks or something. Yeah. No one I said that you were a scout. No one said that you were a scout. No, clear, <laughs> clearly not. But, I mean, the confidence with which I invested in that, in Bam Bam Mullins to the tune of, like, 25 cards wow. uh, is just kind of comical. But some of them hit, you know. Some of them hit better than others. But Griffey, we must all have just, it's like everybody knew, and, and, and it hit. <laughs> it's great when players do that. So, Kevin, let's keep talking about Tier 1 baseball. I know something that you really want to talk about is the the colors of the signatures themselves in this product and how that kind of gives a different flavor to this product. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you, you briefly spoke about the design this year and the marble and the continuity across the different components, um, which really makes it feel nice as a, as a high-end product. And along those lines, we took this same kind of concept with the pens that the players signed. So throughout all the different autograph components, whether it's the Tier 1 autographs, the breakout autographs, the, the prime performing uh, performers autographs, um, you know, you can expect to see a copper pe- parallel, a silver parallel, a gold parallel signed in those respective um, pen colors. So it's just something that adds a nice value, um, a nice aesthetic to the product, and certainly drives a lot of value. And it's just it's just been a nice add for this brand, how we really position it and kind of separate it from our other releases. And um, it's something that, um, you know, we're always excited. Um, it's, it can be a little bit difficult executing, you know, a lot, a lot of logistics and planning with, with the uh, licensing team and, and having the tops reps. But it, it's something that, you know, we're not willing to give up on. And, and we hope that uh, everyone appreciates it and values it um, as we continue to, to build out these brands. So, Kevin, we'll get to the end of this interview with... One question, very simple. Where can people get this product? So Tier 1 is a hobby-exclusive product, so any of your local hobby shops or hobby distributors or online hobby stores would be able to purchase it. Um, As you guys know, it went live Wednesday, 
and every pack guarantees two autograph hits as well as one relic card um, and every fourth box includes a bonus relic card so a little something extra for you how about that all right that's exciting that's nice of you guys my last question is and, and i and i want to start asking this question to every brand manager when i do this kind of interview because i like asking new things if you can go into a box and pick out a card or two what card would you wish it would be well, let's see. That's that's pretty. It's that's a loaded question. Um, I know. That's there, why I asked. There, 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 there is a ton of, of great content in here. We talked about the tier one autographs that are very rare that fall one per case. We talked about the signature tools, which is right. a completely that's new concept. That's so cool. That, um, I think that'll be one of mine. So I'm a little yeah, I'm a little bit torn. I think I'd love I'd love to get a Harper signature tool, yeah, but um, cool. you know what? I'm feeling I'm feeling kind of generous. So I think I'd pick a card for you. No. And I take I pick a card and I give it to you and I think it would be a Cindergard Mats dual on card autograph Oof. that you could kind of frame and keep yep. for the rest of your life and pass it down from generation to generation. It's true. I would definitely do that with that card just to make sure that my future kids would absolutely love baseball cards and hope that they'd love the Mets as much as me. Uh, but thank you. That's so nice hey, of you. Gosh, absolutely. So, you know, I thought it would be a Phillies card, and and, <laughs> and I'm glad that it wasn't. Obviously, Kevin's, of course. Um, uh, well, you wouldn't know out there unless you know this man yourself. But he's, of course, a, a big uh, Philly fan, and uh, I was expecting a, a Philly. But uh, I'm very pleased to know that he would actually pick out willingly a Met two Mets for me. That's very nice of you. Thank you, Kevin. Well, I appreciate you having me on the podcast today and, and your hospitality and, and potentially this this could be a, an opportunity for, for you to bring me on back and, and we can continue talking about the great brands that we got down the pipeline. Well, now you know you're going to get because you just you greased that wheel, man. <laughs> you, you did it. Well, thank you very much, Kevin, for coming on. And once again, that is Tier 1 Baseball in stores now. done a lot of stories where you bring people close to the player and, and and you detail that player so greatly how do you do that so well I mean I'm just gonna say it ask it very simply like what, what goes into that well I, you know the main thing is I get time I mean I not always but usually you know I'm really fortunate and I think you know now that we're talking I do think there are probably some similarities between between tops and SI, um, where there is sort of, you know, I think just like players want to pose for you guys, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's really not a problem for you all to get time with players. I'm sure they're excited to do it. Um, and for SI, there's not, doesn't happen all the time. Um, but a lot of times there's, you know, a shred of excitement that guys have to, that they're being profiled by Sports Illustrated or they're going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated potentially. Um, and so I think I'm lucky in that that helps me that, kind of iconic American brand that Tops and SI both are, you know, helps me get some of that time and a certain level of engagement that I may not get otherwise. So it's just, honestly, it's just a great privilege to to be with them, to be, and, and then you just, you try to take advantage of it. It's like a photographer tries to take advantage of it. You try to, you know, ask questions that are going to, you know, get the kind of answers that will bring readers a little bit closer and help them know you know, a little bit more who a person is and those questions, that time is precious to me. So those questions, you know, have to be really well thought out and, and you know, and then they, the answers have to be presented in, you know, what you hope is an entertaining and informative and 
um, somewhat compelling way. So it's a, uh, you know, it, that part of it's a challenge, but I think that it's all, it's all made easier, you know, when you get to be, to be from Sports Illustrated, just like it would be when you're shooting for tops. Right. And I'm sure there was the, the name Sports Illustrated involved when you were, I guess, pitching the idea to try and tell everybody what the decision would be in the summer of 2014 for probably your most seen story, which was LeBron deciding to come home to Cleveland. And now I, I can't imagine that that was your, let's say, favorite story to write, because really right. a, lot of that, a lot of that was Mr. James's story to write. Right. Um, but what was that experience like to be a part of such a monumental decision on the sports landscape? Yeah, no, it was, it was definitely different um, than any piece I'd, I'd done. I, I've done a, a lot of stories with him and a lot of sit-down interviews. He's, you know, he's one of those players who I think really values SI and you know kind of enjoys has enjoyed his experiences with the magazine going back to when he was 17. So you know we've done a fair amount of those and uh, and this seemed like a you know a relatively organic offshoot of that relationship and so you know I kind of pitched this concept um, to him and his camp about you know kind of telling the world where he, what, what he was going to do as far as where he was going to play but also why you know that, that that to me is a big part of it it's not and I, I didn't really know if like the news element of hold, would hold for that long or if you know other people would find out some other way what I was more interested in was kind of what was in his head and what was in his heart you know why he was going to make the decision he made um, so the interview was was no different really than other interviews I've done with him um, probably a little shy of an hour it was in uh, in this hotel in Las Vegas where he was for his uh, for his annual basketball camp um, but no it was a What's most unusual about it is that I, I knew what he was going to do for about 24 hours before the rest of the world did. And, you know, it goes against kind of every instinct as a journalist, which is to get the information once you've got it from a solid source, which obviously that was a solid source, you get it out as quickly as you can. Um, so that was unusual. And, you know, that you're right. The writing process of it was, you know, was relatively simple because you're writing it in, in his words, um, which is different, not definitely my preference for every story. But it was an extraordinary situation, and really my role was to kind of stitch together, you know, what he was saying. Um, it was more a feat of editing than anything else. But he, you know, I think I was able to ask some of the questions that were necessary to get him to reveal, you know, what he was thinking, what he was feeling at that moment, which was a connection to where he was from. Reading that, it's truly remarkable to to think that no one knew what he was going to do before that came out. It was almost kind of hearkening back to what it used to be where people got their news from the written word. Everyone was on pins and needles trying to figure out what he was going to do. And then all of a sudden, check Sports Illustrated, check an article, and that is where the story is. And seeing it read, literally read verbatim on ESPN, on, on SportsCenter, which I shamelessly was doing. I was on my couch. I remember doing that. I remember watching that. Um, and I think it was surreal, and it was it was kind of going back to the days before the internet, and everybody got their their news from the morning paper, and 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 you know what, their baseball statistics from the back of baseball cards. Yeah, and I think you know, I think what we're trying to do as a magazine is is, is capture that, still capture the spirit of that, um, while modernizing also. So you know, I think it's it's kind of blending everything together, and honestly, that's. 
that's what I try to do. I mean, when I, you know, when I came up as a writer, it was, it was, I mean, the internet was around, but it was very much in its infancy. It wasn't the, the powerhouse it is now. And I still feel as though the fundamentals I learned about, you know, about telling people stories, about reporting, uh, I still think it's all as relevant as ever. It's just, um, it's just delivered in different mediums. But I think that, you know, the appetite for it, for that kind of work and, I think it's the same appetite. You know, I think the readers respond really in the same way as they did then. Um, so I try not to take my eye too much off the prize and react too much to, you know, how times have changed. Um, even though I know they have, I feel like I have to trust that people who are smarter than me will figure out the delivery mechanisms. Um, but I still think a good story, especially about a newsmaker, when you have time with them, is I, I don't think the execution of it needs to be so different now. As it was then, I, I could possibly be very naive, um, but it, I still I feel the same kind of reaction now as I did as I did pre social media, I suppose. And I'm sure you all do too. I mean, I you know it's like you think about these these cards, and again, there's just there's no hologram, there's no there's nothing online, there's just nothing that can replace. Like I'll, I'll give you an example. My my son had a play date last week with a friend, and. And I and I bought them a bunch of a bunch of um, baseball cards, a bunch of tops cards from the 15s, um, just a bunch of packs to have. So I was worried they wouldn't have a whole lot to do. Um, so they just were open in the packs and they're making trades and and all of that. And I was just I was kind of looking at them. And I was telling my wife, you know, it's 2016. It's the exact same look as 1986 in that way. And I don't really see that changing. Yeah, that tangible feeling I don't think will ever go away. And it actually might even be more enhanced due to the fact that everything is going digital and the fact yeah, that you hope i think that there's some rebuttal to that i hope for that with newspapers too you know, i get a newspaper every day my kids read the newspaper it's like you you i do hope for that kind of react you know reject not not a rejection just kind of you just want it to be part of it you, you want to still be i just think there's room for all of these things right i mean there's room it's like si is always on the table at the dentist's office. And I always joke with my dentist. I say, like, you know, you guys are going to keep us going. <laughs> the doctor's <laughs> office, yeah. You can't just throw an iPad on the table there. You know, it might get swiped or something. Um, so I, I I feel like there's always going to be, or there should be a place for it, um, along with everything else. Yeah, and well, I'll, I will close with this. Uh, you know, I also think that great sports writing and just great writing in general won't be going anywhere either because people continue to just soak that in. And you are certainly uh, in that realm of great okay. sports writers. On a personal note, you'll understand why I'm bringing this up in, in a quick second. But this interview is wildly full circle, and I'll explain why. So as a, let's say, 12 to 13 to 14-year-old growing up in New York, I absolutely fell in love with journalism, and a lot of that had to do with reading about a certain New York baseball club that I was obsessed with, which was the Mets. <laughs> and who was writing about all of this but you? And I absolutely loved reading your work, and it, I saw that it was different than other sports writing, and I just kind of took to it, and so much so that four years later, I majored in journalism. And uh, then, really cool Thank you. And then the next thing you know graduating, find my way to the company that very coincidentally and very fittingly kind of indirectly turned me into who I am because I read all of your work and absolutely loved good, hearty, well-written journalism. So thank uh, you, Lee. That's cool to hear. And those were, 
you know, and those were fun teams too. They weren't they weren't great teams, um, but I think when you're growing up, when you're those, when you're that age, those teams mean a lot. Uh, you know, I, like I remember the '92 Padres for me, a team that's forgettable for 99.9 percent of the population, <laughs> was a big team for me. You know, they finished in third place. They competed. That team for me is part of the reason I love sports and probably I'm why I'm a sports writer. I went to probably 60 games that year. It was just, I don't know, they did something for me. And it, part of that's where you are in your life. And I remember those Mets teams well. And even though they weren't particularly good, I, I feel like they were really fun to write about. They were really easy to write about. They had great, they had really fun people. Um, Mike Cameron, Cliff Floyd, Tom Glavin, Leiter. They were, it was a really, it was a great clubhouse, right? Reyes, that whole dynamic. Um, so I just so enjoy my time. You know, I mean, what could be better? It was like I was 26 years old and essentially traveling with a baseball team, with a major league baseball team. And I know it's, it's easy to complain about in week six in Fort St. Lucie. Sometimes I pinch myself and say, like, I could just roll up to Tom Glavin at any point and, and ask him about painting the outside corner. Um, it was it was really uh, it was a special experience. And, you know, I'm glad you ended up where you ended up because it's, it's funny. My, my son was just doing a, a little project for school, and they asked him where they wanted to work, and he said, Tops. <laughs> he said, my favorite company is Tops. So it was just, it, you know, these things are, I don't know, I sort of think that these things stick with you. When you love sports, so much of it is rooted in your childhood and how you grew up. And these these kind of iconic American companies sort of, they stick with you. They take you. You know, they take you to adulthood in some ways, and I think um, some of us are lucky enough to get to do kids' jobs forever. For sure, and uh, and well, you know what? We got a place for them here, so we'll we'll we'll, we'll keep it nice and warm for <laughs> we'll you. We'll call know. you in eleven years. We'll exactly. Get our Twenty-two years, you got a cover letter. Thanks for listening to Top Stock, and we hope you hear us again soon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Audioboom, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and you can find us on Twitter at Top Stock. If you have any questions or comments or would like to tell us your collecting story on a future episode, email us at topstock at tops.com. Special thanks goes to Clay Laraski, Leanne Minutoli, Susan LeJudak, Kevin Eager, and Lee Jenkins. This has been Episode 26 of Topstock.